Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, today is the day of the National League wild card game featuring my St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I will probably be editing the show during most of the first inning, which is traumatic, but it's okay. It's what we do for the listeners, so it's all good. Uh, That's what's on my mind today, but what's also on my mind is the interview that we just wrapped up with May Suramek, who is running in the 89th District, which is a special election coming up in just a few weeks. I really enjoyed this interview. Uh, It was great. She is a great candidate, and I'm really glad she's running in the 89th. Uh, What did you think about her, Jasmine? Yeah, I thought that she was really impressive, and I've always wanted to go to her restaurant. I've never been, but it's been a goal of mine for a couple of years now. Yeah, she owns Noodle Nirvana in Berea, so you know she's very con- closely connected, or has been. I mean, she's an alumnus of of Berea College uh, over there in in Madison County, so she's running in that district. Very good interview. I definitely, definitely encourage you to. Stick around and listen to that at the back half of the show. But before we get to that, we have plenty of other things to talk about. There was a report that was released about uh, Governor Bashir's commutations that were uh, done around the COVID emergency that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. It's kind of a bad story, and Jasmine's going to tell us all about it. Uh, We usually give Jasmine the more depressing stories, so that's the way it goes here. We do. Yeah, uh, I'm going to give a COVID update, and we also have a, an extended quick hit segment. With There's a lot of just kind of smaller news stories that I wanted to catch us up on, so that's what I've done today. So let's get started, but before we do, we wanted to talk about the fact that when in October, this is a, the second year of this tradition, we are emphasizing our Patreon. Um, you get this podcast every week of the year, almost. We usually take like one or two breaks a year, maybe. And you get it for free. But we do have a Patreon, and we do appreciate any support you can give. So please go to patreon.com slash myoldkentuckypodcast. And if you give $5 a month or more, we are going to be doing a T-shirt giveaway starting next week and throughout the rest of October. So that will be three straight weeks where we are going to give away T-shirts. Jasmine has uh, j- you know, created these new cool T-shirts uh, using a, a platform we may may give people the ability to buy them in the future not totally sure about that yet but they do exist jasmine any any uh cool what what's it what are the t-shirts like tell tell us what they're what they're what they look like um we have a few different designs a couple different designs with our logo and then we have another shirt that says fellow kentuckian on it because every week robert you start off the show by saying hello fellow kentuckians and other friends and so you could get a mild kentucky podcast logo shirt or a fellow kentuckian shirt yeah so if you become a a patreon patron with at the five dollar a month level you are uh, eligible for this all of our friends who are already patrons at the five dollar a month level are are eligible for this drawing so that will start happening next week so so you know sign up get your name in there uh start giving us uh the money that you think we deserve for making the show. And that's not all. The other thing we're going to do this month, and I'm going to go ahead and announce this to make sure it does happen, is we're doing this thing. Um, I haven't cr- given it a good name yet. In my head, it's the Border Bonanza. Uh, but what we're going to do is small interviews, uh, you know, 20 to 30 minutes with cool people that, that you know, we know and respect from our border states doing kind of a comparative analysis about politics in the state governments in each of the states that surround Kentucky. So we've got folks from Indiana, folks from Missouri, folks from West Virginia, folks from Virginia, folks from Tennessee. Uh, we got people lined up to do this. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. I'm very excited about some of the conversations we get lined up. You know, I care a lot about Kentucky state government, but I also just really like people who care about state governments wherever they are. (laughs) And it's a really cool opportunity that uh, I think you will have to hear people from other states in the country talk about their state, how it's similar to Kentucky. Uh, You know, if you listen to the show, you probably know a lot about Kentucky state government already. And and you may want to learn, like, how is it a, a little bit different from Illinois? Uh, how is it a little different from Tennessee? Um, and, and just kind of learn how we're alike and different from our neighbors. I think it'll be a cool thing. We're going to release these as we do them. 
on Patreon as Patreon exclusives. And then, uh, you know, maybe at some point in the near future, uh, we'll, we'll like wrap them all together and put them up on the feed. But if you become a Patreon supporter, you'll have access to them right away. So you should just go ahead and do that. That's another reason to do this. So enough business. That's the most business we've probably ever done on this show mm-hmm. ever. Uh, Jasmine, tell us what we need about n- need to know about COVID commutations. All right. So on Monday, Joe Sanka of the Courier Journal released an article about Governor Bashir's COVID commutations. So early on in the pandemic, back in April of 2020 and in August of 2020, the governor granted commutations for about 1,700 people who were incarcerated for nonviolent offenses, most of whom had very little time left on their sentences. They prioritized people who had less than six months left until their serve-out dates. And so this week, a report from AOC, the Administrative Office of the Courts, found that close to one-third of the people released from the commutations had been charged with new felonies. Representative Jason Nemes sought out the report over the summer, um, and he's been really critical of Bashir for not properly vetting commutations. But I... I think there's like a lot of important context here (laughs) when you're talking about the amount of people that were charged with new felonies. I think what really matters is what, what does usual recidivism look like? Recidivism is like, you know, reoffend, reoffending. What does that look like usually? And I think it's really hard to put this like one third number into any context without knowing that because to me less than a third I think it's third it was 32 percent picking up a new felony offense that actually sounds like a pretty decent number as far as recidivism goes um the justice cabinet told the courier journal that this number was 20 percent lower than usual recidivism rates and just Also, for context, national recidivism rates for new arrests within three years of release are usually around 50%. The unemployment rate for people released from prison is usually over 25%, and the highest recidivism indicator is poverty. Um, So, I think it's important to, like, recognize that... The, the headline of this article was, you know, one third have picked up new felonies, but that's lower than the typical recidivism rate. And two thirds have not been charged with new felonies. Yeah, Jasmine, um, a, another really important piece of context, something that I, you know, you know, like the back of your hand, but I think people who aren't as well versed in the legal like world, just be, like a felony doesn't mean something violent or like a personal attack. Like it, it doesn't mean something that people would consider uh, maybe like a a person-on-person sort of crime. A lot of felonies Mm -hmm. uh, are are like things you would, you you know, if you're not well-versed in the the legal world, you might even know it's a felony. Like, I think, you know, stealing something over what, like $500 in Kentucky is considered a felony? Like, that counts as a felony? Didn't we, or do we change? They just increased the threshold this year. Okay, yeah, that's right. That was like a big deal when we did that. But, uh, you know, like defrauding a bank or something like writing bad checks like there's a lot of things Mm -hmm. that you know whenever i hear like that's a class d felony or something i'm like that that seems like it shouldn't be a felony uh i like identity theft if someone's on home incarceration and they like did something to tamper with their monitor that's a, a class d felony tampering with physical evidence intimidating a participant in the legal process that's like if you like tried to tell someone like threaten someone not to testify um fraudulent use of a credit card over certain amounts yeah and- uh being being in a stolen car not even like being the driver of it or being the one accused of stealing it <laughs> Yeah. There are a lot of felonies. There's a lot of felonies. And, and just because, I mean, I think that word is something that people hear and are like, oh, my God, these people have committed a felony. Uh, and, and first Robberies. Of all, yeah. For, first of all. Shooting uh, people. You yeah, know, like. Yeah. First of all, they're just charged. They're not convicted. Mm-hmm. That's an important piece of, uh, of things that we should mention here. Uh, and then and then also, yeah, like what, what has happened here? All of the people, I'm not too surprised to hear that the recidivism rate is actually lower 
than they would expect because these were people who were you know were quote unquote nonviolent and and were already like on the way out of prison. So yeah, I would expect them to be lower. I think that one of the things that maybe this could point out is like we have really high recidivism rates, and instead of pointing to more more punitive things that we can do to these people, like how do we support people to transition to uh, a life outside of prison? Instead of, you know, putting them in positions that causes them to have to, to commit these sort of financial crimes or, or whatever, like these these crimes mm-hmm. uh, again. And then also one other piece, you know, they're walking into a pandemic, <laughs> uh, which which uh, a lot of people were in really dire straits and de- desperate um, for, for, for something uh, in, in that moment. So, so that's also worth yeah. mentioning. Looking at what the typical recidivism rate is one important piece of context. Another is that most of the people charged with these new felonies were some of them were charged over six months after their commutations, which means that they would have been released at that point anyway. So how are we going to put this on the governor when none of these people were serving life sentences? They all would have been released from prison eventually. Some of them very soon some of them would have already been released by the time they picked up some new offense. Um, so I think that's also really important to note if we're going to put the blame on the governor for this. Jason Nemus did note a spreadsheet from Corrections that had a list of 20 people who had more than 10 years left on their sentence. Um, but it seemed like the Courier-Journal had not seen this spreadsheet the ages of the people on the spreadsheet because elderly incarcerated people and medically vulnerable people um, were also considered when deciding like who would have sentences commuted. So like the spreadsheet doesn't have that kind of information, the crimes they were convicted of, and very important, it didn't include good time credit. So the, the time left to serve may not have been accurate on that spreadsheet. Um, regardless, though, like I said, none of the people who received commutations were serving life sentences. So all of these people were, were set to be released. We're not just in- incarcerating them for life. And, you know, I think it's hard to get upset about recidivism when they were always going to be released. And then I think. You know, another important thing to think about is that Kentucky also has the third highest rate of COVID cases and deaths in state prisons. And so, you know, I saw remarks from Representative Nemes and and Danny Carroll that were talking about how, like, the governor's actions were dangerous, commuting these sentences. It's really dangerous to be in prison, too. Um, Prisons breed violence and uh, COVID really spreads there as well and so i think that's something to also think about when thinking about yeah this data whenever we you know we were doing these COVID updates through it since the beginning of the pandemic you know i'm looking at these counties and back when you know not every county was red all the time uh, you'd see like a, a county that would shoot up to like 150 cases per 100,000 people and their neighbors would be at like 20 or 15 or whatever and, and i would like google like what's going on in this county uh, regarding COVID. And it was always like 50 people test positive in the jail or, you know, there's a state prison Mm -hmm. there and there's a huge outbreak that happened in, in just about every state prison. Uh, and yeah, the, our state prisons were incredibly dangerous throughout the entire pandemic. And yeah, saying that it was, you know, dangerous to let these people out. Uh, it, it is only part of the story because you're missing how dangerous it was to leave them in, uh, to all those people there as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the Interim Judiciary Committee met today um, to talk more about this for corrections officials to testify about the commutations. Some of the things said, (laughs) Representative Fisher said that Bashir let out 25% of felons. That's not true. He released 7% um, of what the state prison population was at the time. Um, Carrie Harvey, who was a former U.S. attorney, he's now the Justice Cabinet Secretary, said that they are doing a deep dive into the report, and he stated that a lot of the new offenses that are are contained within this AOC report, those charges have already been dropped. So this isn't one-third have new felony convictions. This is 
one nearly a third have been charged with a new felony um but the justice cabinet is looking into what that number actually looks like if some of those charges have been dismissed yeah talking about this before it goes all the way through the process is really also very irresponsible because jasmine i've learned this from you many many times that whenever somebody's involved in some sort of situation uh the legal process like creates an incentive for the prosecutor and the police officer to like overcharge that person with a felony to try to get them to plead it down to something to in order to get them to do something so just because they've been charged with something doesn't even need mean it was like appropriately charged right Mm -hmm. that was i mean something that that could have been just like an opening salvo in the the negotiation that most criminal trials are yeah there was also a lot of discussion at the committee hearing today about whether corrections had provided that data that included good time credit um carrie harvey said that it had provided the data it seemed like danny carroll and jason nemus had not seen it And Joe Sanka tweeted that he'd gotten no response about his open records request for the information. Um, So it sounds like there, there may be like more context added to this story. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I just wish that stories like this instead, I feel like we were all about like bipartisan criminal justice reform for a little while and it has started to feel like like the tides are turning and several republicans wrote like an op-ed in the herald leader about um needing to be like tougher on crime and i i just feel like maybe some of the reforms like we aren't going to see them in the 2022 session and maybe republicans are starting to take this more like tough on crime stance again even some of the more moderate ones who maybe supported criminal legal reforms before i don't know this i wish though that people you know would look at things like this and see that recidivism rates are so high um that when they see that they would recognize that maybe like maybe prison isn't rehabilitative. Like maybe we aren't serving these people well and, (laughs) and that's why they're committing new offenses. Um, so I, I wish that we looked at it a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you're, you're exactly right, Jasmine. Uh, I I mean, whenever like the thing that's the most upsetting about this conversation to me, first of all, is that Jason Emus has in the past, you know, said he was in favor of criminal justice reform uh, and, and fixing some of these problems. Now, Danny Carroll has never uh, been on that no, side. No, he, he has not. Representative That's Fisher correct. has never been on that side, uh, you know, but but he's the, the person who, like, is leading the charge here. Um, and it really feels like this is political expediency for a Republican politician who's trying to score points in his district. And that's really, really disappointing. The, the other thing is, whenever we have conversations about recidivism, you know, it's so easy, based on people's preconceived notions and what they understand about the prison system, because that what they've seen on TV or movies or whatever, to, to make it like make the answer be more punitive measures. And that's wrong. Uh, you know, we need to help people re-enter society, and because we don't do, we do very little, if anything, to help people once they exit prison. Um, that it's not a shock. Uh, if you if you learn these people's stories, you know. <laughs> Nobody wants to go back to prison. Like the, the, the amount of people who want to go back to prison is very small. Uh, and and you know it, the the situations that where people find themselves in that situation, in my in my you know what I know about the subject, most of it is based around the lack of support that we have for people after the, we've taken them out of society for a period of time, and that's the problem we have to solve. And it just seems like there's a lot of people who run the government here in Kentucky that are just very very much not interested in doing that. So, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Another fun story from Jasmine. Thanks. Appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, all right. Talking a little bit about COVID, uh, the actual COVID numbers. Uh, we are continuing to gradually improve throughout Kentucky. Kentucky's down to a rolling average of about 3,000 cases per day, down from a high of 4,200 cases per day about three weeks ago. I actually did not see today's numbers. Jasmine, uh, you can attest to the fact that um, when we started our conversation with uh, Ms. Suramek, I had my child on my lap. Uh, I was... (laughs) 
<laughs> I was I was not able to check the numbers because I had Louisa, uh, uh, you know, responsibilities today. There are nine counties as of Tuesday that are outside of that red zone of 25 cases per 100,000 population. All of those are relatively small counties. Five of them are in far western Kentucky. But based on where the numbers are, if trends continue continue to go the way that they're going, by the time we give this update next week, there will be several more counties throughout the state below that 25 cases per 100,000 mark. In our urban areas, uh, we... Well, we usually talk about urban areas right here. I, I, when we talk about our urban areas, it might be the case that Kentucky's cases actually dropped even further than we thought because Louisville's data was really strange for a couple of days last week. I think I actually mentioned this on last week's show. I actually was able to confirm with the health department that there is some kind of data issue that went on with last week's data. Uh, and, and that, But that data was the data that seems wrong was actually reflected in, in Louisville's dashboard last week. There has not yet been a, a correction issued. Uh, currently, last week, Currently, that data says that Louisville has had 3,700 cases last week, which is near an all-time high. I think it actually should be fewer than that, but but you know we will wait till we see some sort of correction on there before we say that for sure. Lexington does also appear to be getting much better, um, as well as many other places throughout the state. Kentucky's deaths and the death rate, they, they did not get much worse, did not actually get any worse last week, but it also didn't get much better. So just like where we were about two or three weeks ago with cases, we're at a peak, but we have not yet started coming down in terms of death. We're, we're staying steady between 40 and 50 deaths per day on average. Louisville's death, death, Louisville's deaths, though, do also continue to decrease, and, and that kind of gives further evidence to the the theory that that more vaccinations in a county equate to a lower death rate from COVID, even if there are still a lot of cases. And I will say, like, if cases, you know, did actually go up, the death rate was like very, very small uh, relative to that. Uh, so that's, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going on there? hospitalizations hospitalizations have come down quite a bit we are slightly above 1900 on average hospitalizations per day uh that's that's uh, coming down from a high of about 2500 a few weeks ago however we are still above the high watermark from the winter um in the winter which was the worst of the surge before the delta variant appeared we were at just about 1800 hospitalizations per day so we're actually still above where we were in the worst of the winter hopefully those cases continue to come down one interesting insight i saw here when i was digging into the louisville data a little a little deeper louisville's hospitalization rate in in louisville hospitals never got above where it was in the winter so this huge burst of extra hospitalizations was almost fully borne by rural Kentuckians. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's not something that's surprising if you saw pictures of the National Guard at some of these hospitals across the state. Um, uh, some of our rural hospitals were stretched so extremely thin. Um, really, really heroic work from those people, and hopefully they're going to get a break here soon. Kentucky is vaccinating about 5,000 people every day. We're staying pretty stable at, at that uh, that level. We were at 7,500. We went down. We hit about 5,000, but we are staying pretty stable. And hopefully that means the decline is over and that we're able to stay at that rate. I would love to see it go up, but I would also just, you know, I would, I, it would be worse if it, if it continued to go down. So, you know, that that's what's going on with, with vaccination. Some people have actually started receiving their booster shots. Jasmine is one. Jasmine, you got your booster shot. Did you have side effects from your booster? Um, I haven't gotten it yet. You I'm getting scheduled. it. Yeah. Okay. This week. So you're going to be in Louisville's data for people getting their boosters. Louisville actually mm -hmm. is, is tracking that. And more people got their booster shot last week than got either shot one or shot two. More than 10,000 people in Louisville got their booster shot. And, and really, only pe I'm not eligible for a booster because I got, I got Moderna. Uh, only people who got Pfizer are eligible for a booster, and they are above um, shot one and shot two. I, I just, you know, the political divide in this and the mm -hmm. vaccination rate just goes to show that there are people who are just like chomping at the bit to get their, get their booster, get their vaccine, and then there's just a large number of people that aren't. So that's, that's kind of what I, I'm, I'm seeing in this data. According to the CDC, there are now 56 counties in Kentucky with at least a 50% vaccination rate, uh, including 14 with at least 60% and 5 with a 70% vaccination rate. That's, that's good news. It's more than we had last week. 
Overall, Kentucky's at about 53% vaccinated, and, and at the current rate, it, it takes about a week and a half to add 1% to the total. Of course, that's probably going to get harder and harder to attain as we go throughout the future, but, you know, hopefully, you know, we, by the time we hit the winter, uh, we will be at about 60, and, you know, who knows if we keep going the way that we're going. Um, by sometime early next year, maybe we'll be at 70%. Maybe we'll hit those Vermont-style numbers, which will really, really help us to, to stave off the, the coronavirus as we move forward. Um, if you're looking for something to read, the Courier-Journal had a really good piece this week about people who received the vaccine recently, uh, including just interviews about why they waited, why they didn't get it sooner, uh, and wh why they decided to get it when they got it. A lot of people you know, who had really harrowing experiences with the virus that caused them to want to get it, um, You know, a lot of people who are facing just difficulties, people who are afraid of the side effects, all that kind of stuff. Interesting stuff to read, definitely for sure. At the end of the day, COVID is getting better here in Kentucky. Um, we are, you know, not among the, the darkest red states in the country, um, but we are still among the worst. It's still very bad here, even though it's getting better. It's worse now than it was in the wintertime. So at the worst of the wintertime. So whatever you're doing, don't stop doing it yet. Uh, stay vigilant. Wear your mask. If you haven't taken the vaccine, do it. If you know somebody who hasn't gotten the vaccine, talk to them about it. Uh, that is where we're at with COVID. Any COVID stories for us, Jasmine? Nope, I don't have any. All right, I'll let you, you know. I'll let you know about my booster side effects next week. All right, we'll do. Yeah, uh, my my family member who was dealing with COVID uh, tested negative. Everybody seems safe. That's very good. They were able to get the vaccine, or they got the vaccine before they got the virus. I think that really really helped them out. All right, we have a long list of quick hits because I think there are a lot of stories that we should talk about. So according to the Courier Journal. Craig Greenberg had another big quarter in fundraising in the Louisville mayor's race. They reported him raising $370,000. That brings him above $800,000 raised for the race so far. That's far more than anybody running by a lot. David Nicholson, uh, who is you know the, the, the Louisville uh, county clerk, in his first quarter where he was running, he raised $210,000, which is way behind the $800,000 that Craig Greenberg raised, but not bad for a first quarter. Mm -hmm. Like that, that shows that he's competitive, that he's serious about the race. He was able to raise uh, a lot of money. That's, so that's good for him if you're a David Nicholson fan. Republican Bill DeRiff raised $215,000. He's running like as hard as Greenberg on the other side. And I was a little surprised. I thought that that was a little light for like the, the, the big marquee Republican running in this race. Um, I, you know, Bill DeRiff, I thought would have a bigger quarter and he didn't. And then lastly, uh, Tim Finley and Shamika Parrish, right? They both raised about $25,000 each. It's going to be tough for them to get their message out with that level of fundraising. I think that their voices are really important. So I certainly hope that they're able to raise the amount of money that they need, uh, to, to have their voices heard during this race. So that's Louisville mayor fundraising. Any, anything you want to say there, Jasmine? Nope. Okay. I think that covers it. <laughs> All right, good. All right. Governor Andy Bashir, he filed his paperwork to run for re-election. That's not super surprising. I would have been shocked if he didn't. But the Herald leader also said that Governor Bashir plans to keep Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman on the ticket. So something that I went to look up after I heard that is no sitting governor since Paul Patton in 1999 has kept their original lieutenant governor on their ticket while running for re-election. Um, so that means like, you know, Matt Bevan, you know, he did not have, um, he did not have, who was the Lieutenant governor with, with Matt Bevan? Janine Hampton. That's right. He dumped Janine Hampton and added Ralph Alvarado before him. Steve Bashir ran originally with Dan Mongiardo, who was a state Senator from Eastern Kentucky, uh, ditched him, uh, his second term and ran with, uh, Louisville, uh, former Louisville mayor, Jerry Abramson. Uh, if you'll remember that. Um, prior to Steve Bashir, Ernie Fletcher, uh, his uh, uh, lieutenant governor, Pence, not vice president. There's a different Pence. Uh, that was his. Uh, that was his lieutenant governor, um, and that guy basically uh, said that you know Ernie Fletcher was corrupt and that he wasn't going to run with him, uh, and then refused to resign his position as lieutenant governor. So Ernie Fletcher had to get a different person to run with. Uh, I forget who that was, and that was in 2007. I believe, when he lost to Steve Bashir originally. And then before Ernie Fletcher was Paul Patton, and that puts us back at 1999. So, yeah, Andy Bashir will be the first sitting governor to keep his lieutenant governor on the ticket since 1999. Um, 
I think a lot of people were wondering if that is what he was going to do. Uh, I know that there were a lot of Jacqueline Coleman fans that were nervous about it. Um, we're Jacqueline Coleman fans. I think that she's great, and I'm glad he's keeping her. That's what I have to say. What about you, Jasmine? Yeah, I'm really glad, too. But, yeah, that was something that was definitely a, a rumor, is that he, he may have a different running mate. So um, I was surprised to see that's not the case already. Yeah, yeah. I think Andy Bashir does his very, very best to, to get rid of all sorts of drama as soon as possible. Uh, he's pretty good about that. Um, and I thought that was a smart move on his part, if that's what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Connect is coming back fully. So the health exchange, this was, Connect was the health exchange that was developed by Governor C. Bashir's administration. It was a model of a successful implementation of the Affordable Care Act, the marquee piece of legislation passed by President Obama. Um, but after uh, Governor Bevin was elected, he basically dismantled this, like, jewel of a, a, a you know health exchange. It was really, really sad. Um, you can go back and listen to me giving very, very depressed updates about this as it was going on. <laughs> um, Governor Andy Bashir took steps when he was elected to put Connect back in place, uh, but I think it was mostly just a place to like vet, uh, you know, your plans. I don't think it was the same sort of thing as a full health exchange. But this year, it will be fully back in place. Kentuckians can go and shop for plans, check their eligibility for subsidies. Uh, a lot of people liked the experience of Connect significantly better than Healthcare.gov, which is what most places are using uh, that aren't using a state-based exchange. Um, so I, you know, if you'll remember, Jasmine, I was a big, big fan of Connect. I'm really glad it's it's back for us this year. Yeah, I got my health insurance from Connect when I was in law school, and it worked pretty well. Very good. Very good. All right, Churchill Downs. They made news recently when they unveiled a massive historical horse racing facility in downtown Louisville. Did you see pictures of this or like renderings of it? Yes. There's like big old video boards. It looked yep, kind of crazy. real big video boards. Yeah, yeah. This, of course, brought back up the subject of the tax rate on Kentucky's newest form of legalized gambling. So tax rates on what they're calling HHR, a historical horse racing machines, they're significantly lower than other states who have legalized gambling. So like Kentucky's getting way less in tax revenue from, from this form of, of gambling. Mm-hmm. So Jason Bailey from the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, he pointed out that Churchill Downs themselves said they wanted to work to find a more equitable tax rate when the bill legalizing historical horse racing passed. But at a recent legislative hearing, um, HHR champion uh, Republican Damon Thayer, very instrumental to getting this passed, even though we're not the biggest fans of him, he really balked at the idea of increasing taxes. This is his quote. The general fund is going to be getting more revenue regardless of whether we do something or do nothing in the next session or future sessions. It's called growth. It's called jobs, economic opportunity. Every one of these places opens up, creates new jobs. Those people are paying taxes, unquote. So Damon Thayer does not seem like he is a big fan of raising taxes on this machines. This is a big bait and switch, and that's very, very disappointing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really, really hope that, you know, a lot of Republicans were opposed to uh, historical horse racing as legalized gambling. Hopefully they're up in arms about us not even getting tax revenue from these stupid things. So hopefully uh, we we have some sort of compromise that we can come to that is a something at least more in line with how slot machines are taxed in other states. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jerry Lundergan is headed to prison. Um, he's the former KDP chair, he's a former state rep, and he's the father of Allison Lundergan Grimes, and he was convicted of moving $200,000 in illegal campaign contributions to his daughter's U.S. Senate campaign. We talked about this while it was going on. It was pretty sordid affair. Um, his prison term is 21 months. We'll see how much of it he serves. Yeah. Um, yeah, tough, tough news for the Lundergan family. Uh, best of luck. We just talked about how much prison sucks, so, you know. Yeah, so even though he was convicted a while back he'd been released um while an appeal was pending and now the stay of his sentence pending appeal has been denied and they said you have to go serve your term yep well there you go uh the last one i have here is the most recent jcps school board meeting which occurred on tuesday night it had to be ended abruptly after the people there got into a shouting match about student resource officers. Security thought the situation was becoming unsafe, and the meeting was adjourned and rescheduled. This was a pretty wild story from last night. Jasmine, did you see any of this? the comments going on here? I saw that it ended early because of this, but I 
I didn't have a chance to like dig into what actually happened. Yeah, it seems like that there were people on both sides of the issue, um, which is, you know, I, I these school board meetings are getting so contentious and dangerous, really, with I think it kind of all started with the critical race theory and people who, uh, you know, w- mm-hmm. were opposed to critical race theory getting up and like yelling at some of these school board meetings. And all of a sudden, people from the other side of the issue showed up and started yelling about the other side of the issue um and then now it's spread to other issues that are are are, you know similarly divisive like student resource officers and i mean i don't think there's anything wrong there's a reason we have public comment sections for these things it's not like it's not all pawnee and it's not all like people just saying insane things a lot of people have important salient points i saw a lot of people who were signed up to give their speeches um who were like dressed up in suits students who really wanted to get something off their chest i think that that's really really important um but we have to find a way to keep these things safe um and and to keep you know the i don't know i don't know if like the keeping the temperature down is the right way to put it but we have to just find a way that it doesn't cause us to have to like abruptly end uh school board meetings so hopefully we're able to figure out how to do that at some point in the near future all right wow that all about do it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with May Suramek. May Suramek is the Democratic candidate for the special election in House District 89, which encompasses pieces of Madison and Laurel counties, as well as all of Jackson County. The seat was opened with Representative Robert Goforth resigning from the seat amid allegations of sexual assault. Ms. Suramek is the owner of Noodle Nirvana in Berea, and was recently featured on an episode of Where Y'all Really From, a podcast from Louisville Public Media about Asian Americans in Kentucky. So May Suramek, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Hello, Jasmine and Robert. So, so happy to be here. Excited and a little nervous, to be honest with you. But yep. thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we're really thrilled to have you. No no need to be nervous. Uh, we are always really excited to, to talk to candidates. Uh, you know, we've obviously been off of that for a while uh, with, with, you know, no elections this year, no, no big, no, no general elections this year, just specials, but the specials are definitely starting to happen. So we have the candidates or a candidate for one of them here. So let's talk a little bit about your race, you know, district 89. We've talked to candidates from district 89 before through the years, and it's a pretty tough one for Democrats. I would say, uh, you know, looking back at, uh, you know, previous election results, the high water mark for Democrats in recent years was 33%. Uh, and different that was in a different special election back in 2018 that Kelly Smith ran in. Um, and even really while facing very serious allegations, like the allegations that caused a representative go forth to resign have been around for a while. Um, so even though he was facing them, he got 70% of the vote. Uh, in 2020. So, you know, it's pretty typical in the district that I live in. The Republicans kind of like write this one off. And uh, it's also pretty typical for Democrats uh, in districts like, uh, you know, District 89 sometimes to write this off. So why do you think Democrats should be taking this race seriously? First of all, let me ask you a question. Do you think you have many Republicans that listen to this podcast? Um, we have a non-zero number. Uh, I don't think it's like, <laughs> I would, I don't think that there's that many, but there, there are some. Yeah, I think there so. might be a few. Yeah. That mm-hmm. being said, we are kind of counting on the Republicans to write us off right now. I think that the seat has been red for over 40 years, something like that. And, um, from where I sit, um, there must be a reason that people in my district, chose at the last election to put into office somebody that strangled his own wife with an electrical cord over a perfectly nice Democrat. Like there has to be a reason there. And somehow, for some reason, the values of our party are not resonating with the people in my district. So um, I feel like it is, this campaign is about reminding people what our party stands for and to be really unapologetic about it and to excite our own base into saying that, hey, maybe their vote is worth something and maybe it will matter. And really just to remind um, Republicans and Democrats, because I live in a very you know mixed town myself and many of my friends are Republican, um, but just to remind all of us, particularly um, those of us in the working class, that the Democratic Party is just really simply about making sure that everybody has the same opportunity to succeed and to be happy and for us to not forget 
our most oppressed, most marginalized populations. And I think that message resonates with people, but I think people forget it, that it exists or that it's attached to the Democratic Party. I don't know at what point it was hijacked or forgotten, but um, the whole um, approach of our campaign is to help remind folks that across across both aisles, by the way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a that's a great point. And I think that it's really I mean, our our friend uh, Ben Carter wrote a piece like five years ago at this point that kind of said like Democrats need to run everywhere, even if it's a really tough district, just because, you know, it's important to get our message out there. And I think that that sounds like what you're trying to do. And I think that's awesome and good and very, very important. There's have been some really good signs coming from your can- campaign, though. So you've managed to raise uh, a significant amount of money and sign up, uh, you know, a good number of volunteers. So, you know, you, you just gave us that pitch for us. But as you're signing up people to volunteer or even to, you know, donate some of their money, um, what is it that you tell them about generating interest, not just in a, a, a race that's difficult for Democrats, but for a, a special election race that might be during a time that they didn't even know that an election was occurring? Yeah, I think, um, so I've been told repeatedly, um, and many people have been told, people that look like me have been told this, that I'm not what a winning candidate looks like in Kentucky, or that there's no way that I'm going to win Jackson County or Laurel County. Um, And I've been told that in the past. And um, I think that um, for me stepping out and doing this, it, it tells people that there's not people don't care what what someone looks like at the end of the day there's this narrative that has been given to us that this is what it takes to to be a democrat to win and we follow that formula and we still don't win by the way so people are kind of sick of that narrative and be like oh here's this woman that doesn't fit that narrative um and she's willing to do this and they i think they are excited about it and they're uh, they're sick of trying to follow some formula that clearly hasn't been working for at least 40 years in my district, by the way. And they're excited about that. And I think they see themselves reflected in that, that anybody that cares, that's not a career politician, that is sick of the status quo, that wants to make a difference, can and should step up. And they are rallying around that. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And and, I mean, I totally hear what you're saying. There is kind of, I mean, and there was, the Democrats managed to hold the House until 2016, it it, it has to be said, um, using a a calculus that just really isn't working anymore. Uh, And I think that we have to try lots and lots of different kinds of things. Uh, And we kind of have been. And I'm always really glad to hear that somebody's really running hard with an innovative and interesting strategy uh, that's different than what's come before. So I I am a little interested, though, because you make this case not just to volunteers and not just to donors, but you had to be selected to run in this race. Uh, In order to do that, you know, you have to talk to the county parties, and there's three of them in this district. And, uh, you know, you obviously went through that whole process. And I'm interested to hear, like, was this process competitive? Were there other people that were interested in doing it? And, And what did what message what form did your message take when you were speaking to these county parties? And was it any different than when you're talking to us or when you're talking talking to potential volunteers. Robert, it was like a political reality show. It was full of drama and climactic points and turning points. And um, it was not for the faint of heart. But yes, there um, there was a candidate that had already expressed interest in um, receiving the nomination. And um, when Robert Goforth resigned, I, you know, I think timing is everything and intuition is everything. I have considered this in the past, but I just haven't been ready. I wasn't able to step away. I had either a sick parent or my restaurant was really needing me, or I was a mom with a younger child. And this time when I heard that Robert Goforth was resigning, it felt like I didn't really have control over it. Like I had to do this. So I expressed, I asked around, I know how, you know, politics work a little bit. And I asked around to my own party in Madison County. I said, Hey, do y'all already have somebody lined up? I know that that's how it happens. And if so, um, are you excited about them? You know, are you interested in, in receiving other nominations? And they're like, no, we have not received any other official nominations. We've heard things to the grapevine, but if you're interested by all means, throw your, your hat in the race. And so I did. I did. I expressed interest. I think there, I don't remember if there was a form or, or something, but I oh, through a letter, I expressed interest to the party. And about um, a few days after that, a member of the Madison County 
Democratic Party came to my restaurant and sat down in front of me and told me that I would not be getting the party's nomination and that those votes are already secured for someone else. Um, and Robert and Jasmine, I'll have to tell you, that's not the first time that I've been told things like that. 10 years ago, I considered running for state Senate and I was told that may ain't no one in Rockcastle County going to vote for you. And I believed it. I believed it. I said, you're right. You're right. Um, I need to step aside and let somebody more electable get elected. Um, and so I heard this person tell me that I would not win the nomination. Um, and I had two choices then, right? I'm like, okay, let me say, you're right. You're right. Let me go away and let someone more electable do this. Or I could be like, you know, I'm going to be 50 years old next year. Am I just going to spend the rest of my life just hiding in the shadows and always, you know, being a, a, appeasing the party or people who don't think that I'm a, a proper candidate. And so I decided to just go for it. Um, but I did have to do a lot of pre-campaigning, if you may. I reached out to all the um, committee members of all the counties, introduced myself, but that wasn't an easy thing to do. It's hard to get, get people's phone numbers or they don't answer their emails when they don't know you yet. You know, I'm just like the strange person contacting them. So I reached out to on social media. I said, people in Jackson County, people in Laurel County, do you know your party executive committee members? If you do and you know me, um, I'm interested in running for state representative. I'm interested in winning this nomination. Can you email them or call them or at least let them know that I exist, that I am in this race. And they did, you all. Like they did by like lots and lots of folks did that and finally got the attention of them. And then when it came down to nomination day, I came with 10 letters of support from all over three counties. And out of those 10, three were from Republicans. And I ended up winning the nomination. That's a great story. I love that story. And I'll tell you why I love that story. And that's because I hear a lot from people, people who get the message like you did when you wanted to run for state Senate that the party is not open to you. And I hear that from somebody that doesn't really speak for the party. They just speak for themselves or speak for their friends or whatever. And they think that they have a lot of power. And the process, if you actually work it, will work. Uh, and I tell that to people all the time that are just like, oh, you know, the party's not for me. The party isn't going to help me out. It's like, well, you can make the party work for you if you're willing to do the work. And that this is just perfect example that that's absolutely possible. You are absolutely right. I did want to make that disclaimer that all of these folks that have said these things to me, they didn't they actually didn't represent the party and the party came back and, and wanted to make sure I knew that. But they 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 felt and, you know, I, I know it comes from a place of passion. I really do. I know that they're just so interested in in winning and seeing the party represented across the state that that's they really think they have the party's best interests in mind, but they don't. They don't and it's outdated and it's holding us back. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you know what? That's your vision and your vision's different than another person's vision and that's why we have this process because it allows people to organize to to have their vision, you know, come to fruition and now you're the candidate for the 89th district. So that's that's great. And I agree with you. Uh, but I, I, I really love that the process played out in a way that shows that people coming from the outside after doing the work can win or can win a nomination like this. So that's really great. The last question from me, uh, District 89 is an interesting place. You've already kind of alluded to it. Uh, you're like, no, no, ain't nobody, you know, in Jackson County or which one did they say? Jackson, I guess it was Rockcastle back then. That was when you were running for Senate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's just south of Laurel County. Uh, but all three of the counties in this house district are very different. You know, you come from Madison County in Berea oh. and, and a lot of the former uh, Democratic candidates who've run in this race before have come from Berea. Uh, but, but, you know, you have all of Jackson County, which is very different uh, from Berea, very different from Madison County. And then you have Laurel County, which has a different political identity than even Jackson. And people will, you know, lump those two together and be like, well, they're not Berea. But each of those two are different, too. So tell us a little bit about how you've begun introducing yourself to these places and learn the political cultures of these places and how you're making connections from Berea to the other two places in this in this district. You're absolutely right. Um, very Three very, very distinct um, political 
energies, if you may. And I have been trying to really immerse myself in in all three of them. Um, I spent some time in Jackson County and Laurel County last week and really just dove deep into the issues impacting each community. And they're very, very different. Um, That being said, there are um, themes of commonalities that run through all three counties that um, I am hoping to... um, to highlight and talk about, for example, I'm going to talk about our similarities really quick first, and then I'm going to talk about how we're approaching our differences. So um, I have a friend that she runs a public library system in Jackson County, and I talked to her about sort of the issues impacting folks in Jackson County. And um, she talk, she tells me that she experiences um, like homelessness around her library. And my um, restaurant in Berea is located right next to our Madison County Public Library. And we also have homeless people that kind of hang around the library in the back of a restaurant. Um, my friend in Jackson says that every time there's a big storm, the, the, the roads by the library a flood. Same thing happens um, near my restaurant. There's an apartment complex where two of my staff live in the basement apartment. Every time it storms, their apartment floods. My friend in Jackson uses her library to further her work in the community. She um, runs a feeding program, a clothing program through her library. And we use our business to do the same thing with our nonprofit partnership that I can tell you about later. Um, So while we have these distinct differences, at the end of the day, there are some basic human needs and some basic struggling that is going on in all three of our communities that I feel like if we can look at them Um, collectively, um, we might be able to address in terms of bringing more resources in, um, you know, the power of of the majority there. Um, That being said, when I was in Jackson last week, um, some of the strongest, most resilient, brightest people that I've met, I'm a firm believer that there is already really great work going on in these communities and that um, people have been doing them at the ground level for forever and that my role is not to go in and tell people how to fix it or how to run it or the solutions that I have but to really work on uplifting their work and hearing their stories and working with them to connect them to resources and legislation and policies that help their communities. Um, That being said, Jackson County doesn't have a hospital y'all. They have two ambulances and one of them is broken. They don't have a dentist. The, the problems in Jackson are, are really serious. Like I think about myself or about you, Robert, with a baby. Like if something happened and your child got sick like or seriously injured, they would have to somehow get to Berea. And that takes, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And Berea's hospital can't even do all the things at a larger hospital. So you probably have to go to Lexington from there. And that's just not acceptable. You know, it's just not acceptable. Um, That shouldn't be happening in America. Like, it really shouldn't be a a community that's right down the road for me. So when I look at Jackson County, I know that folks are just sort of fed up. I feel like they express to me that they feel despair. Um, They express to me that hope is not enough, that they need hope with legs, they need solutions, they need resources, they need money. Um, And I hear that. um, And, and, and they're willing to, to do what it takes to make that happen. And they want um, a state representative that can, that can really make a dent and, and, and really address those issues head on and not just pretend that, that they don't exist anymore. So that's Jackson County. Um, when I spent time in Laurel County, I have to tell you, Laurel County is all about the power of the women. Um, so many strong, powerful women came out. In fact, um, Laurel County wasn't represented in the nominating committee. Um, I think with Laurel County, we have a real opportunity to sort of rebuild the democratic base there. People are, and this is how one Laurel County woman described it to me, that they've been in the closet with um, their democratic status for a long time and they're now coming out and proud of it and they're ready to work and they're energized. And that is the energy that's going on in Laurel County. In fact, about, I don't know, four or five of those women are the ones who are behind like writing letters and and contacting people to get me nominated. So really different energies in both of the communities. Um, again, all three of our communities have some serious, have been seriously neglected in many ways. And yeah, but again, some of the the best people that live in our district who are just who are just fed up and ready and ready for us to stop talking about how to fix things and to really fix things.
Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in that last interview, you mentioned your restaurant a little bit. So we wanted to talk to you more about that. You know, you are running as a small business owner who believes that noodles can change the world. So for any of our listeners who haven't heard your TED Talk, can you tell us a little bit about your restaurant and just the ideas that you have around small business and community? Sure, Jasmine. So um, I worked in nonprofit pretty much my whole adult professional life, 20 years. And um, during that time, either as ED of um, a nonprofit or ED of my alma mater, Berea College, um, I found myself spending most of my time raising money because it takes money to change the world (laughs) and it takes a lot of money. So rather than being in Frankfurt, lobbying for better victims laws or working to to create programs that served the populations that we were serving. I was spending probably 80% of my time throwing fancy shindigs that were too expensive for even the people we served to go to, by the way, Mm -hmm. Um, asking people of wealth to donate, writing grants. And that's all I did. And I was like, you know, there has to be a better way to do this. I was pulling therapists who should be working with um, the people we serve to help like buy punch for events. Like it's just not right. It's not the best use of nonprofit resources that are already very limited. So I thought that um, it would be interesting to create a sustainable business model that um, prioritized people in the community in the same way that it prioritized profits. So I created, along with my husband, Adam, Noodle Nirvana, that um, what we do is we partner with one nonprofit each year and we donate a portion of our sales every first Wednesday of the month for the entire year as well as all tips to that nonprofit. So over the last five years, we don't really count last year because of COVID. We kind of put a pause on it because it was the restaurant industry was in shambles. But over the past five years, we've supported four nonprofits and have raised a lot, not just me supporting, this is customers coming in and our staff um, participating in our vendors. We've raised over $120,000 for those four nonprofits that are um, serving the most vulnerable um, segments of our population, including the food bank and the domestic violence shelter. Very cool. I first heard about your restaurant from Representative Attica Scott. She uh, talks about you all a lot and promotes your restaurant on social media quite a bit. So that's where I first heard about it. She's Um, definitely an inspiration. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, just talk a little bit about running for office as the owner of a small business. What kind of expertise do you think that you would bring to Frankfurt if you're elected to serve in the house? You know, Jasmine, just yesterday, there were these wonderful women in the Louisville area, the Democratic party there and they were offering to write postcards to send the constituents to to sort of tell them about my race and they didn't know me they didn't know me they just read my bio so they're like oh may we did a postcard template see if you like it and it said something like pay attention to may she's a business owner and she can take care of business in frankfurt or something like that <laughs> and, and i wrote back and i'm like you know i'm a really terrible business owner because if I were better I'd probably be rich by now and I'm never going to be rich but what what I am and what I feel proud about is being a social entrepreneur and somebody that does really prioritize my community and my um, the people that work with me um, along the same lines as we prioritize profits our um, company um, over our two restaurants is called Third Space Kentucky and as you all know Third Space um, refers to the places beyond work and home where people come together to exchange thoughts and better their communities and I feel like that's what I can bring to Frankfurt honestly is to to be innovative in the way that we address social problems and to create a space where it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, that we can come together over a common cause and do something about it, which we've demonstrated to do that in our little restaurant. Yeah, so you have already mentioned that in a different life, you have worked for nonprofits. And so, you know, we've talked about your business, but what from your time in the nonprofit sector, you know, are there any issues that you're passionate passionate about that you could bring to the legislature or what about that experience would you bring to Frankfurt? So um, I, for the last 20 years, I have worked 
on the ground, face to face with some of the most marginalized, most oppressed, most abused um, Kentuckians. And um, I think that that is my whole inspiration and driving force for doing what I'm doing today is to remember those faces and to know that um, there needs to be a space and a place in Frankfurt to uplift those voices and make those voices heard. Um, I also understand the complexities of trauma and addiction and I understand how things like poverty and abuse um, play into that. I, I don't think there's any quick fixes for any of this. I understand the long-term investment and approach it's going to take for us to get to the deep roots of some of these things before we can start fixing anything. Um, and I'm, I'm invested in that long-term commitment. So I think having that nonprofit background gives me that perspective in Frankfurt that not everything is going to be as just quick, easy fix. We can throw some money at it and it'll go away. I understand that it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of investment to, to not fix things at the surface, but really um, address the root issues of things so that we can really see long-term sustainable healing and, and growth. Mm-hmm. And last question here, if you are elected, you will be the second Asian American elected to the Kentucky legislature. Tell us how you consider issues of representation and how it would impact you to serve as one of the only Asian Americans to ever serve in the legislature. I um, wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, if it were not for representatives Nima Kulkarni and representatives Attica Scott, who... Um, when it seemed impossible, both have been my biggest hype women and been like, hello, we did it. You can do this. <laughs> um, so to say that representation matters would be an understatement. It um, is the difference between um, quitting and just listening to those people that said, nobody's going to vote for you in Rockcastle County to look at um, people will vote for you. We did this. Um, I think, um, and I thank those two women so much for uh, making it possible for me to be here. That being said, I also think that um, this notion of um, being an outsider, it doesn't matter that I have been here since I was 18 years old, 30 years, I'm still viewed as an outsider because my great, 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 great grandparents didn't come from Madison County. Um, and I think that in itself is a statement and something that is promising and exciting because so many people are excluded from being at this table because they don't come from a long line um, generations of Kentuckians and I think we're just missing out on some really um, interesting and inclusive perspectives out there so um, I hope to see more of that in Frankfurt. Yeah I actually just had a, a brief follow-up on that specific question so one of the things that's kind of difficult about I would assume this position that you're in and that's why I want your to hear you talk about it is you know the Kentucky legislature I think all but like eight people in it are white and of the people that aren't white I think like seven of eight are black and they're you know uh whenever you talk about Asian Americans as this group of people uh you know there are lots of different kinds of asian americans and, and you're no representative Kolkarni is an indian american we do not have any like chinese americans we don't have any japanese americans uh you know there all of these different groups uh in kentucky that exist and are real people you know have no representation and if you're elected um what it would what what would it be like to be you know both yourself uh, as a specific representative of, uh, you know, a, a specific people group who has come to the, the Kentucky legislature to bring your experience, but also, you know, have wrapped up in that, like, all of the other Asian people in the world as uh, people who, I guess, potentially could look to you as either an inspiration or somebody uh, who might be willing to, to bring their problems uh, to, or, or, you know, their issues to, to Frankfurt. You know, um, Jasmine talked about this at the beginning, the podcast that um, we started. Um, um, it's um, Charlene Buckles, Dan Wu, and Representative Kulkarni and I started this podcast to, to address exactly that, Robert. I don't know that people know that we exist here. 
And we do. And when I say here, I mean in Kentucky. And we do. And we're doing some amazing things here um, from not just in Louisville and Lexington, but in eastern Kentucky as well. Um, so I think the first thing to do is to say, hey, we're here and we're contributing and don't ignore us. And we're Kentuckians just as much as you are and see our contributions and celebrate them. And, you know, of course, this podcast that was created came from sort of a um, more urgent place when the um, massacre happened in Georgia. It was in response to that. And we're like, how can we prevent this from happening to Asians in Kentucky? And we're like, well, at first, people need to know that we're here. So that was our first step. So I feel, to answer your question, I don't even know if I'm answering your question, Robert, but I think that um, just being present and being um, at the forefront and being a voice at the table um, will speak volumes and will will we'll show other Asian Americans, AAPIs in Kentucky, that that their voice matters and can be represented in, in Frankfurt. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you're specifically equipped to do that. I do know that Noodle, Noodle Nirvana has noodles from all over the world. So, you yes. know, that's <laughs> very cool. All right. Well, if people are, are excited about your uh, your election coming up, what are things that they can do to connect with you, uh, to volunteer with you, to, to donate, all of that kind of stuff? How can people get in touch with you? So we have less than four weeks, you all, to to win this election. And it is, it is intense. Um, we have about, I don't know, 10,000 households in the three three counties and we want to reach every single one of them so we are phone banking every weekday from now till november 2nd and we're canvassing we're doing lit drops because it's COVID. Um, we're doing literature drops every saturday um, through election day so you can sign up and by the way all those things yard signs lit drops all that cost lots of money and for me to get my name out there quickly requires funds so you can volunteer to do any of those things, phone bank, write postcards, um, do lit drops. And if you are in a position to share your dollars with us, we will gladly take that too. And all of this can be done on our website at www.mayforkentucky, everything spelled out, .com. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of you? Just me. <laughs> <laughs> at jasmine smith on twitter <laughs> they can find us um at linktree.com slash my old kentucky podcast and there we have links for our twitter instagram facebook um how to listen to our podcast our podcast is on any podcasting app and you can also specifically go to patreon.com slash my old kentucky podcast like Robert said at the top of the show, um, we are going to be giving away some My Old Kentucky Podcast t-shirts for Patreon supporters of $5 or more. So that's patreon.com slash myoldkentuckypodcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.